Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of The Investment News Podcast. I'm Jeff Benjamin, along with my co-host Bruce Kelly. This week we've got a couple of great guests. We've got Mindy Diamond, founder and CEO of Diamond Consultants. She's a veteran uh, recruiter in this space. We're going to talk to her about uh, breakaway trends and what else she sees in the, uh, the wealth management space. Following up, we're talking to George Moriarty, the chief content officer here at Investment News. But kicking it off with Mindy. How you doing, Mindy? Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Thrilled to be here. Hey, Mindy. Hi, Bruce. Good morning. Can you give us a, like, start it off with a little bit of the kind of the lay of the land in, in what you're seeing in the, in the breakaway space? And I know we're, we're kind of going to put position that against the backdrop of 2020 when a lot of people thought in early 2020 that things were kind of, kind of grind to a halt, but that apparently didn't happen, correct? Yeah, correct. So as you can imagine, in March of 2020, when the pandemic first hit, I think, you know, we all expected, well, okay, it's been a nice run, but that's the end of this. <laughs> but, and that was, and March and April were obviously very quiet as every advisor, rightly so, was tending to their very scared clients. But probably by May or June of 2020, something really shifted. And what shifted was advisors began to realize, okay, I'm working from home and yes, there's a pandemic going on, but my clients are really relying on me perhaps even more than they ever were before. It's got to be, I have to find business as usual or back to a new normal. And as they began to work from home and have more time to self-explore and more privacy, to do so in the privacy of their own home, I think they began to even more so really honor and acknowledge whatever feelings, frustrations, limitations, whatever they were feeling. So the work from home movement actually really accelerated or drove movement. And you don't need me to tell you how active a year in terms of movement the end of 2020 was and so into 2021. And I'll say one other thing. So yes, it was accelerated by working from home because people had the time and privacy to reflect, but it wasn't the only reason. People were feeling frustrated and disenfranchised to some degree, and we can talk about why that is for a while anyway. And being from home just gave them the opportunity to really explore it. Right. What What would you say is different in and we're not out of this yet, but we're we're moving out of it. The the pandemic and the lockdowns and all that remote stuff. What would you say some of the kind of the top level things that you're seeing that's different as far as the kind of the breakaway trend? Are are people doing it differently? Are they are they kind of asking for more or looking in different areas than they were maybe prior to 2020? Yeah, well, a few things. So one, I think advisor mindset really began to change in the last five years. And it went from, if someone was going to move, what's the deal? You know, I want the biggest deal up front to really wanting freedom, flexibility, and control more than anything. And so as advisors go out and evaluate their options, that's the mirror in which they're, or the threshold they're evaluating an option against. Secondly, the industry landscape or the waterfall of possibilities has really expanded. So it used to be binary. If you were a Merrill Lynch advisor, the only options you would consider is either staying put or moving to Morgan Stanley, UBS, or Wells Fargo. 
Today, there are many more options than that, many more legitimate options. And so it is as valid today to see an advisor move from Merrill to Morgan as it is to see an advisor go from the wirehouse world to Rockefeller or First Republic or to full-on independence or any model in between. So the other thing is, is that where people are going has become much more fractured, meaning People ask me all the time, you know, who's the biggest winner in this race for top talent? And the answer is there isn't one. It's all over the map. And it's really driven by how an advisor wants to live his or her business life. It's an exciting time to be an advisor. Mm -hmm. Bruce, do you have uh, something for Mindy? Yeah. Hey, Mindy. So nice to have an opportunity to kind of chat with you just kind of casually here. I feel like I know your whole family, you know. Eh. I've spoken with your husband. I speak with your son, Lou, frequently. I hope if, if it comes around where I'm speaking with your grandchildren <laughs> about recruiting and stuff, it's, you know, put me out to pasture and shoot me. Yeah, or and then we've I'll all been around that. too long. That's yeah. true. <laughs> so I hope that doesn't occur. I think it's kind of fascinating. Again, I hate to harp on this, but, you know, Jeff and I have been around forever in this business going back uh, 20, 20 plus years. And when I first started calling recruiters and you and, and others, you know, when I started here, you know, here's a list of the 10 recruiters to call, right? Michael King, Rick Peterson, that kind of thing. And, and try to find out what's happening inside UBS or Payne, Payne Weber, even UBS Payne Weber, right? You know, if I, if I said to someone, oh, would, it, would this broker want to go to LPL or would this broker want to go to AIG advisor group? Would this broker want to go to uh, set up his own RIA? You know, people like you, not you necessarily, but big time recruiters would laugh at me, you know, because there was no, there, there was nothing, there was no, I guess you call a value proposition for the advisor. So many people back then, they were tied to Merrill Lynch or Morgan Stanley or Bear Stearns, right? With the golden handcuffs, so-called the stock options, right? And the deferred comp. And then that kind of blew up in 08 and 09 when people's stock became worthless, right? And then it be allowed people, allowed advisors to kind of at these big banks to kind of look around more uh, uh, and, and have more of a selection or more of a thought. And we've just seen, you know, hundreds of people, we, hundreds of advisors leave Wall Street every, every year for different types of work, workplaces. What's the, how do you think of all that? And, What's happened in the past, you know, 20 years or 10 years as Wall Street, even though Wall Street has the biggest, uh, you know, Morgan Stanley, UBS, Wells Fargo, Merrill Lynch, they have the biggest clients, definitely. They're still hemorrhaging advisors. Yeah, well, good question. So it's a big question. So I think what's changed the most is that the financial crisis of 08 really was a turning point. It made advisors look at their firms and they began to become kind of globally disenfranchised, distrustful or mistrustful of senior leadership. And it's when the drumbeat of the fiduciary, the word fiduciary became really mainstream. I mean, that was always, fiduciary was always a word that was batted around within the industry, but it wasn't written in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. And as the word fiduciary and what it meant that an advisor really needed to do, clients began to expect that advisors needed to do what was solely in the best interest of the client, 
That's what really began to turn the tide. And advisors began to be open to other models, began to say all of a sudden, there's something, this can't be all there is. And at the same time, almost simultaneously, you had a lot of smart leaders who came from the wirehouse world, many of them, who began to look at this and say, okay, so we've got a group of disenfranchised advisors. We've got clients that are expecting more from their advisors. There has to be another way. So I remember Elliot Weissbluth, just after the financial crisis, coming to my office in Chester, New Jersey. Hightower, of course. Yeah, exactly. Before Hightower was launched and pitched the idea of Hightower to me. So when would this be, like 2009, 2010? Something something like like that. that. Yeah, I, I can't tell you the exact date, but it was, you know, before Hightower launched. And I said, that's ridiculous. There's not a quality. It sounds like a great idea. But no advisor is going to leave a name brand like Merrill or Morgan or UBS to go to a name they've never heard of, Hightower. What's Hightower? But he proved me wrong in a big way. And say what you like about Hightower, it really was sort of the maverick or the the impetus for a lot of these newer models that proved that it was about the model, not the name. It was It about, definitely was it, one of them. It definitely yeah, was one of them. For sure. And if you could build a model that could solve for all the things that advisors were missing or looking for, one, the ability to monetize upfront, because lots of people might have had interest in independence before the financial crisis, but what stopped them from going there was a turnkey solution to get there. Nobody wanted to go through the brain damage of having to figure every single thing out for themselves and build it from scratch. And they wanted money. You know, they had all this unvested deferred comp and they lived in a world where they're used to being incented by big transition packages. And to move with that, it was just a non-starter. So these models- And Hightower was initially offering stock to people though, right? Correct. So Hightower's initial model, it's very different now, but Hightower's initial model was really the first of the models that offered 100% of an advisor's trailing 12 in cash and 100% in equity. And of course, you know, a lot of people so look at it. you got to it. own a piece of the business, in other words, if you were yep. an advisor. Yep. Yeah. So you're betting yeah. on yourself, essentially, right? Well, you're betting on yourself and you're betting that by joining this community of advisors that the, the equity will be worth something more than a lottery ticket. And right. that was really the beginning of these models that said, you know, essentially, if you build it, they will come and they are coming in a big way. And then, of course, you know, First Republic and Rockefeller took all that and really turbocharged it. Right. So how much of your work these days is, you know, compared to say the past is in the past, I imagine, you know, in say 2005 or 2006 pre-credit crisis, 80, 90% of your business or 100% of your business would have been moving advisors between wirehouses. And how does that, if that's accurate, and then how does that stack up with today? Yeah. So, you know, we've always been a firm that's been about being nimble and only always a hundred percent about where the advisors are or what the advisors are about. So when I first started the business almost 25 years ago on my bedroom floor, I might add, my first and only (laughs) client, it's true, but my first and only client was Morgan Stanley. And as much as I believed in what Morgan Stanley was doing, and it was right for many advisors, 
I began to realize quickly that you couldn't always put a round peg in a square hole and it wasn't right for everyone. So early on, I began to really expand my client base, if you will. But in the last decade, our business has gone from moving advisors, you know, wirehouse to wirehouse exclusively, because that's just all there was in those days, to it's as likely for us to move an advisor today between or among wirehouses as it is to move them to a boutique firm, a regional firm, independence. And even we do a ton of M&A even within the independent space. You know, once an advisor is already independent, now looking to either buy or sell or merge or whatever else it is. The so-called so tuck-in, changed- I guess. Yep, a tuck-in. Yes. But the business has changed a ton. Right. What are you seeing as far as uh, compensation models? How has that evolved or is it evolving? Yeah. So, well, first of all, I think that probably the biggest concern amongst every wirehouse advisor is that as these big firms fight for more control and change comp, that eventually they will move to a salary bonus compensation model, which is the death knell for any sort of entrepreneurial mm-hmm. spirit and any sort of, you know, <laughs> making really great money. That's every wirehouse advisor's worry. Yeah, we did I'm a big to- story about that a couple of years ago and it got a tremendous response. Exactly. You know? So here's what I would say. I do not think that in the lifetime of any advisor listening to this, likely that moving to salary bonus is going to happen. But I do think that the notion of a death by a thousand paper cuts is possible and that the big firms will continue to cut costs and will continue to mess with comp because they hold all the cards. They've got control. As long as you're an employee, you're not in control. With that well, it's said- Well, it's all about who, the fight for the client, right? Which is the- Well, the firms believe that they own the clients and the advisors believe they own the clients. Which so is that's- the eternal, you know- <laughs> the battle right. between right. the advisor and the broker. Right. And just, I, I, the, I think the math, the kind of back in the envelope math is that, you know, if you're a, a warehouse advisor, you have a good book of business, you're, you're getting 35 to 40 cents per every dollar of revenue on the grid, so-called, right? Yeah, well. Roughly. So- and then, but if you're an employee, with a salary and a bonus, your your pay is substantially less. Oh my God, it's way way less. I mean, these private bankers or non traditional advisors that work on salary bonus models are generating many of them, you know, tens of millions of dollars of revenue. And if they're making, if their take home is a million dollars a year, it's a lot. And so, yes, the the, the comp is much less. Again, I don't think the worry is that we're going to see salary bonus in the wirehouse world anytime soon. But I do think that these newer models have figured out a way to offer equity as currency. I mean, look at what just happened with Steward Partners. So you've got a five-year-old firm or so that now has two different investors in it taking on Goldman as custodian and just proved that the equity that was offered to advisors when they first started was now is a lot more than just a lottery ticket is worth, I think it's, it's up 500% or something of the sort. So it proved that you know equity as currency is very interesting to advisors. Advisors love the idea of ownership, voice in the firm, all of that. And So the fact that there are so many different, very legitimate options, including independence being a real option, 
is what I believe keeps the wirehouses honest. This additional competition for top talent is what is the very thing that will prevent the wirehouses from going salary bonus. Because if they do, everybody would leave. There's there's so many valid options for them. Why would they stay in a model that doesn't work for them? Right. Mindy, I'd like to ask you a little bit about for listeners that might be kind of just thinking about making some kind of a move. What is the process like? I mean, what are some best practices if you're a, if you're a rep or an advisor out there and you're, you want to see what's out there? To, I mean, do, do people just call you and, and you do the work or do they have something in mind? And, and what exactly does that work look like from your perspective? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So first of all, I think a lot of advisors, when they begin to get curious or a little more than frustrated are willing to take calls from representatives from other firms or from third-party recruiters like me. The mistake that they make, I think, is to take those calls sort of randomly and haphazardly, unstrategically, and a lot of times unthoughtfully. What I mean by that is not having given a lot of thought to what they want. So when we work with an advisor, the first thing we do is talk them through what we call a self-assessment. It's something we created that it's not meant to be homework, but it asks a lot of really important questions. What are your goals? Do you see yourself where you are five years from now? What are the things that are frustrating you? And to what extent are they limiting your ability to get it done, whatever it is? What are the things you'd like to be able to do for clients that if you feel, if you could, how much more do you think you'd grow? Are you and your partners on the same page? How much independence or autonomy do you want? What's most important to you? Transition money or equity or growth or something of the sort? I mean, lots of questions like that. And what we find is that when they're, they're pivotal and critical, most advisors don't take the time to ask themselves those questions. But when they ask those questions and answer them, then they've got a much greater clarity about what they're looking for. That clarity is what enables whether it be them themselves or us to help them to really curate or come up with the appropriate short list of options to consider. Because the great news is, is that the industry landscape has expanded and there are many more options than ever before. The bad news is the industry landscape has expanded and there's more options than ever before, meaning it can be overwhelming. And so it's job security for us because one of the biggest reasons we've we've been so busy and gratefully so is because advisors find the whole thing opaque. They just don't, what is the difference? What is a service provider? What does a platform firm mean? What does it mean to be quasi-independent? What's the difference between Stewart and Snowden? What, why are Rockefeller and First Republic having so much luck? What's involved in being independent? I mean, a million and one questions, but the clearer you can be, from the get-go about what's important to you, the more likely you are to evaluate the right options. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about the issue of diversity in, in financial services. I mean, it's a it's obviously a growing concern. There's a growing focus on that. Um, I was having a conversation, and I'll call it a conversation because it was civil on, uh, on social media last week about uh, somebody was asking if panelists and keynote speakers on at conferences should should represent the industry which is which is mostly white and male or should it met, represent the the country you know the makeup of the country and 
somebody who's a, a very uh, outspoken person on the issue of diversity said it should represent the count the country because that's the aspiration of the industry. With that as a as as kind of a foundation, I want to ask you, Mindy, what what do you see from the recruiting side? Is it a priority among companies recruiting advisors and 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 should it be? And how much of a focus is it that you're seeing out there? Well, first of all, increasing diversity is a priority of every firm, large or small, for sure. And not just because they want to check a box and and you know increase the ranks of diversity, but but diversity of thought, diversity of perspective, diversity of gender is very important for all the right reasons. Again, not just checking a box. Unfortunately, the wealth management industry is a predominantly you know, male, white industry. It just is. It's not that, believe me, every firm I know would not only love to, but would be willing to pay a premium for a a quality diverse candidate. But the reality is wealth management is very much a meritocracy. And the, some of the most successful advisors I know who make the most money are women or diverse in some way. They are not in any way hamstrung by their gender, by their race, by their ethnicity, by their anything, by their sexual preference, by anything, because you make money based upon how well you serve clients and how much in assets you manage and how much revenue you generate and how much you grow, period. But Mindy, there's a history of lawsuits, you know, by women, by African Americans, you know, against the big firms, say, saying essentially, you know, that they were discriminated, that these people, women and 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 African Americans, were discriminated against the firms. They weren't given leads from clients when advisors retired or left. Those went to the other white male advisors and the like. That's a common claim that you hear in these complaints. And they were, you know, they weren't let into the old boys network. You've heard stories, I'm sure. You know, I mean, I, I know stories from women who were mutual fund wholesalers, you know, who couldn't go to the event because it was in an all male club. I mean, I'm talking about 20 or 30 years ago, but there's a it's it's just not a pure meritocracy, though. Right. Well, I, I think that's right, but I think we've come a long way. I, I think you're right. 30 years ago, I mean, I used to joke when I would go to conferences 20 years ago, I would say it was so good to be a woman. There'd be a huge line for the men's room and, you know, <laughs> five of us in the ladies' room. So no question that's true, but I think that we've come a long way. And believe me, first of all, I'm not necessarily familiar with the lawsuits you're talking about. I'm not in any way saying that they don't exist, not even a little bit. But I just recently had a male advisor tell me, a white male advisor tell me he's looking to leave because when an advisor left his office, he was not given, you know, others were given preference on the distribution of accounts and not him. And he felt discriminated against. But I think today it's less about race and gender than it is just about there is this old boys network that. There are certain advisors in certain firms that are the golden child, if you will, that get all the goodies. It's just how it works. Mindy, why do you think there aren't 
this is something I've been kind of wrestling with myself. Why aren't there more female RIAs? I mean, I can understand why you could say there's systematic maybe discrimination that have historically prevented women from moving through the ranks or even joining a wirehouse or something like that. But a registered investment advisor, I mean, pretty much anyone can do that. And if women are interested in this space, it's not that difficult to set up your own RIA. Why do you think we don't see more women? Why are those numbers still lower? And, and, and is the trend shifting as far as you can tell? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, you say it's not that difficult to set up your own RIA. True. And surely the ecosystem to born to support the breakaway advisor, the advisor that wants to leave employee land and be independent, surely that ecosystem is more robust than it's ever been before. So the resources are there, yes. But still, it's risky. Still, it's a lot of work. Still, it's scary. And still, women have a whole lot of competing priorities and generally tend to be more risk averse than perhaps their male counterparts. So I, because I am a woman, represent a lot of really spectacular female advisors. And in a perfect world, Many of them would love to be independent. What independence stands for is, is compelling and exciting. The notion of having total freedom and control, the notion of being able to customize and serve clients without limitation, the notion of building a legacy, all those things are, are fabulously exciting. But at the end of the day, it's a giant leap. It's the biggest leap. And male and female, there are plenty of people for whom it's just too big a leap. So I think it's changing. I think that we are going to begin to see, we will definitely see more female advisors heading in that direction, um, but it's going to take some time. Well, my, my follow-up to that then, and, and it's, it's not really fair for two old white guys to ask Mindy to represent all women, but the question is, if the the things that you laid out are potential stumbling blocks or or reasons that more women don't launch their own RIAs is it fair to assume or or should people should we expect the RIA space to be to re, to represent the the country at large 50% men and 50% women well that would be awesome and to be honest with you as a woman, and knowing how spectacular so many of these female financial advisors are, they would make the best RIAs for sure. So would we all love to see that? Definitely. But I think that that's probably to get to 50% is probably unrealistic because there just aren't that many female financial advisors in the industry. Now, for sure, Every firm, independent or otherwise, wirehouse, regional, independent, all of them are working hard to change that, to add to their diversity ranks, to make sure that their trainee classes reflect a more diverse population, et cetera. So hopefully, yes, it will change over time. Okay, good stuff. I think, Mindy, the, the, the big firms, right, are trying to diversify their ranks. They're focusing a lot of their efforts on that in training. The training programs for younger advisors or, you know, Merrill Edge advisors or the like, because they have the most control over that, right? They can, these are, these are kids right out of college or a couple of years out of, out of college and maybe with another firm. 
it seems to me like Merrill and 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 and, and Wells Fargo and some of the others are really really focusing on on that type of prospect. Okay, Bruce. Anything else for Mindy before we let her go? Nope. It's always great to talk to Mindy, though. Uh, it's great to talk to you too. I'm honored to have been here. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mindy. My pleasure. The financial industry runs on Broadridge. We provide the infrastructure that powers the trades, communications, and insights you rely on every day. As a global fintech, we deliver the next-gen solutions that promote resilience, digitization, and greater success, so you can run your business with confidence. What you do next matters most. We can help. Broadridge, ready for next. Okay, now we've got George Moriarty, our chief cook and bottle washer here at Investment News. He has uh, the- Content officer. Tooth content officer. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Come George. On, I man. apologize. Get it together, I hope that doesn't affect my June bonus. But uh, <laughs> all right, uh, George, you've been the uh, the boss here at Investment News for I think a year and a half. It's been uh, wonderful having you. Uh, let me read what you told me to tell you. It has been <laughs> excellent having you here at Investment News, leading us through the competition to uh, charge ahead and be the best journalist we can be. George, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Jeff and Bruce. It's great to be here. You know, Jeff, what you showed in that intro is that your attention to detail emphasizes the value of a good editor to correct errors before they get in print. There you go. There you go. That's job security oh, for man. somebody. Yeah, but I mean, I will say if I'm proud of nothing else that I've done over the past year and a half, it's getting the Investment News podcast up and running. You guys here, have been here. doing a great job killing it. More downloads and listens every time we go around, and I usually get a laugh or two out of it as well. Thank All you. Right. Well, thank you. Well, as you know, we've told you the story, George. We were trying to get the powers that be to to allow Jeff and, and me to do a podcast for years, and it, there was always, you know, uh, many many reasons not to. And then uh, about a year and a half ago, you we you know things changed here. You came in and. Boom! All of a sudden, we we get this uh, podcast up and running, and it's been going for a year now. So, thanks for the opportunity, my friend. Yes, thank you. Absolutely, and I mean, it's about what we're trying to do. Is you know, look, investment news. I came here because of what's been done. It's an awesome platform. So let's test out new stuff, and you know, share the wit and wisdom of Jeff Benjamin and Bruce Kelly with the rest of the world who <laughs> prefer the audio format versus the written format. There you go. George, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about your background. What you were, if you could just tell people what you were doing before you came over to Investment News and what is a chief content officer. And then just your, um, your take on the investment advice industry after kind of dipping into it for almost two years now. Yeah, absolutely. So quick background. So I started as a journalist back in 1997 and I was covering the private equity world buyouts, venture capital, all that stuff. And then I was at the street.com for a long time, working alongside the inimitable Mr. Kramer. And that's right. what got me into the subscription business. And you know, I always liked uh, the subscription model for journalism because it's a good way to sell fun and be able to do creative journalism and work with people closely. And then after the street.com, I did my first foray into the wealth management industry. 
when I went to Merrill Lynch and I helped launch uh, Merrill's new platform, at the time new platform for their clients called My Merrill, which you know became Merrill Edge. It was an interesting time to be there and build that, put together a good content platform behind it. And, and then I went to Seeking Alpha, the individual investor platform, right? contributed content for a long time. So you know, I, I've seen the whole breadth and scope of the financial advice industry and, the, and really the financial journalism industry, I should say. And, and I mean, I came to investment news for a couple of reasons. I like the advice industry. I think the advice industry has a huge opportunity to do good for people. So much financial journalism is scoreboard watching. Hey, this stock's up a million percent. Hey, Elon Musk can buy four planets, and, <laughs> right, right, and Jeff right. Bezos can buy the can create the starship to send us to them. You know, like that, that sort of scoreboard journalism is fun, but the kind of work that's happening at Investment News and the kind of thing that the advice industry does that's good is really important stuff to help people figure out how to retire, how to manage themselves. You know, and there's a lot of advisors doing really good stuff, helping with financial literacy. Um, we just did a great feature on how advisors are helping people with special needs. And, you know, that right. sort of stuff is an exciting thing to lead because, yeah, we, we want to keep exposing the bad guys. But this is a case where if there's a bad guy out there, that's not the whole story because they're undermining the good work that happens uh, across the industry. And watching what's gone on here is great. And here is where I'm going to embarrass our friend Bruce Kelly. Because another reason I came here was the quality <laughs> of the journalists. And I have it on good authority because I was on the platform when they announced the winner. That Bruce Kelly is a 2021 Neil Award winner for best commentary for his on advice column. So that's the sort of work that goes on here in investment news. and. Bruce, congratulations. And tell me a little bit, because I'm going to turn the table on you. Mm -hmm. How have you, as the on advice columnist, award-winning on advice columnist, seen the industry change? And what do you think is next? Well, I really think the what was being pitched... Well, let me back up first. Th thank you very much for the, the nice words, George. Investment News and and I have been chasing a Neil Award for quite some time. I think I've been nominated once or twice before, and so it's really gratifying. It's an, it's an as I I said on Twitter, I tweeted at the time. It's both an honor and a pleasure to win a distinction like this, and it's it's gratifying professionally for myself, and it's and it's great for the for our whole team. I think. The advice business really is changing from the transactional nature of commissions and products, you know, into much more, you know, planning and paying a fee for, uh, uh, you know, an annual 1% fee or a fee for advice or a fee for planning is becoming kind of the kind of the expected and accepted norm these days. and. 20 years ago, people were preaching that gospel, and it's taken, it's both uh, Professor Benjamin and I both started here in, in 2000, if you can believe it. He in March of 2000 and me in April of 2000. I think both, <laughs> neither one of us would believed we'd be here for 21 years, you know, but we have been. 
and enjoyed it. And I know I've enjoyed it tremendously. And what was being preached at 21 years ago is actually becoming a reality. So I think that's really, it just shows in, in, you know, trying to shift a culture, right? Because if you remember, um, the 90s were all about, you know, tech stocks and pets.com and and tech stocks blowing up, right? Oh, yeah. And Stratton and Stratton Oakmont, you know, the Wolf of Wall Street, Stratton Oakmont, and pumping commissions. And now it, it, the, the industry really has changed enormously. There's still a fight for clients, right? Control over the client. Who owns the client? The, the advisor or Morgan Stanley, right? The advisor or Merrill Lynch. And that's, gonna, that's as old as time. That will always go on. <laughs> but, you know, the financial advice industry really has carried through on that change to a certain extent. Still has a long way to go. You know, there's still abuses in sales of commission-oriented products and the like. But that, that, that's my, you know, 30,000 feet takeaway. Yeah. And that, that's a little bit of the tale as old as time, right? Like you, you can't make that go away. Now, you know, but looking when, when I think about it and Jeff was just instrumental in leading our RIA summit and all the activity continuing to go on in the RIA world, you know, does, does the growth of that RIA business, and maybe this is one for you, Jeff, since I've apparently taken over hosting this podcast and you guys are just going to answer my question. <laughs> You're the boss. <laughs> But uh, like, I mean, Jeff, you're you're plugged into that RIA. Are the RIAs expediting some of the speed of that transition that Bruce is talking about? Well, I think the RIAs are the transition. You know, this is an industry, keep in mind, that is still struggling to identify itself as a profession. And, you know, some people would argue that it's not all the way there yet. Some would argue that it is there and everybody defines profession in different ways. For example, you could say that journalism is not a profession because of the fact that there are no standards or requirements to to be a to be a journalist. Nor but, should um, there be. Well, as a political science major, I'm offended by that. Right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there you go. So anyway, but. As far as the evolution, yeah, uh, Bruce is right. I mean, it, it, it has moved vastly away from transactional-based sales, which some people tried to you know, migrate toward fee-based by calling it transactional-based advice. The industry is now largely, largely fee-based or wanting to be fee-based, but now there's pressure on that being maybe, maybe needs to be pushed back or pushed away for something that is less conflicting and less focused on the size of the portfolio, because the industry, as it continues to evolve, it's trying to become financial planning and financial advice and not invest and not just investment advice, because the investment part is quickly becoming a commodity and it's cheap. And it's, I, I hate to say this, but it's, it's pretty easy, but yet a lot of the industry is still basing their their fees on how much on the size of your portfolio. So that's where I see it going next. It has to get away from those asset-based fees, but uh, there's a ton of inertia there because I think something like 70 or 80% of the industry charges asset-based fees for at least some of their clients. Yeah. And it, it really is that that's another thing that we're watching and that, you know, you can see more of the work that we're doing appear, you know, the convergence of 
everything around wealth. You know, it, it's less, hey, how much money do you have? How can I make it grow? It's more, how much money do I have? How much money do I need? How do I take care of myself when I get older? You know, that that full suite of service, it, it, it's much more a product of and a project of life care as much as wealth care for the folks who are really, in my opinion, doing it well, because they have to take care of different situations. The and scary make sure part, the scary part to action. me is that there are still a lot of advisors, if you want to call them that, that are out there still doing managing portfolios for the most part and calling themselves financial advisors. And it just seems like a disservice to the people that's that are, what they've always done that are Jeff. that are paying that one percent fee for portfolio management and not getting all these other things that the more holistic advisors are trying to provide. I mean, there's a lot of advisors now that just outsource the asset management, say so we can have somebody else do that for you, and it, you're you're not going to suffer at all. But and we're going to do things like help you make sure that you've got you know the insurance products you need or the type of insurance you need and and you've got a retirement plan and you've got an estate plan and a trust and all that other stuff set up for you, which is to me the the important stuff. Because in order to have some money to manage, the work really lies on the individual client to somehow produce that kind of money, either by saving a lot and spending less or magically making a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, it's it's an old tagline, and I don't recall which Merrill Lynch leader applied it when I was there. But, you know, the, the holistic advisors, you said, you know, they talked about, they called it the essential relationship. And that's really what it should be for it to be doing good by the client, right? Right. So what else can I tell you, gentlemen? It's such an honor to be on the Investment News Podcast. What do you got for me? Well, what well, final question for me, George? What what do we got coming up at Investment News that the audience might want to know about for the second half of the year? Second half of the year, we got a bunch of stuff. We are, um, of course, we have so much activity in the retirement space. You know, between our written content with Ed Slot and Emil Halle, who I know has been here before me a right. couple of times. Not that I'm bitter. And Mary <laughs> Beth Franklin. You know, I, we're, we've got our retirement income summit coming up. We've right. When our, is when is that? And is there going to be an in-person part of that? In-person in the fall. Yes. Oh, so, awesome. Yep. We are getting back to live events. We're looking forward to it. We are, are not, we, we think we're going to go somewhere warmer climated for that. Okay. Traditionally, we've been in Chicago in the summertime. I think given that it's going to be a little later in the fall, we're looking Southern so everybody can pack their shorts and come on down for that. But those details will be up soon. And, you know, another one in a big area of focus for the company, we've got our annual ESG summit coming up in December. That's our summit and film festival. Our producer here, Steve Lamb, is always intimately involved with that film festival. This will be the third year running. And, you know, we're just really looking forward to closing this year out. We're returning to normal. You know, we're, we're seeing people. I was in the office yesterday for a meeting with the events team. We got we had 10 people in there. Everybody was so happy to see people again. It was great. That's great. And, you know, we're going we're gonna to be in person. We're going to be, we've got another RIA event coming up. That one will be virtual. We've got our women's events coming up, couple in person, couple virtual. Because, you know, the other fact of the matter is virtual is a great way to get people together. So it works for some of our events. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, we've got our special 
issues of the magazine. In August, we'll have our diversity feature. Then we have our we'll have our women's issue in November, and you know we've really looking forward to it. And then our December packages will be getting gearing everybody up for 2022, and uh, you know seeing what happens. Is inflation real this time? Is as Jeff was touting in this week's cover story, or is it not? And I'm not saying Jeff was touting inflation. I just mean you know that's what everybody's got their eye on. Of course. Jeff would never tout inflation. He's far too responsible. <laughs> <girls for that. laughs> That's right. Hey, uh, George, I got a question for you before we let you go. Um, what we've written a lot of stories about this, uh, about the financial advice, wealth management, financial services industry, uh, what they learned from 2020 from a business management standpoint. Mostly the industry and most of the world learned that a lot of jobs can be done virtually. A lot of office space, not necessary. What have you learned as the chief content officer in investment news about the what you experienced with managing people that uh, worked remotely for almost the entire year and still for the most part? And then I think even Nicole Casperson, you hired her without even meeting her in person, which I it turns out to be a huge mistake, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not going to hold, hold that one against you. But tell, talk to us about that. I mean, that that aspect of it, you know, trying to keep everything in line without being able to see people. So it was interesting because, you know, for eight years prior to this, I managed a remote workforce that was, you know, not just remote around the U.S. It was remote Israel, India and around the U.S. So I was accustomed to it. And when I took the job and was back in the office, I I quickly became accustomed to that office routine of seeing people, being able to say, Hey, Bruce, I got an idea. What do you think? But two things I learned. The first is if you're going to manage a team and adjust during a pandemic, have the quality of team that I inherited at Investment News. Because I don't know if you guys have ever said this. I'm pretty sure you haven't. But it was March 12th, a Thursday, that we went home with our computers and said, all right, folks, we're shut down for two weeks. I think that was the expectation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that. What folks behind the scenes may not know is March 13th was a production day for a 20 plus year old physical edition of the magazine that had never been put to bed virtually. <laughs> so it turned out we could do that and we could do it well. And it went seamlessly. You know, we never missed a deadline during. During the adjustment to the pandemic, we introduced a digital edition that is phenomenally popular with our readers to the point where in a recent content survey, somewhere like 45 to 50% of our readers said they prefer the digital edition. You know, they can have it open on their computer. It's a piece of cake. They love it. So so that's the first thing I learned is, is having that is important. The second thing is that you still need to be back in touch, but there's a whole lot of benefits that can come out of it. Because we used to do our daily news call over the Polycom. And now, thanks to Zoom and Microsoft Teams and everything else, our daily meeting is face-to-face. We're seeing people. You know, we didn't, I never met Nicole Casperson until she'd worked for us for nine months. But I knew what she looked like because, you know, the wonder of technology, we got to see it. But now she's been in the office a couple of times having conversations. I'm ready to get back. I'm ready to have our next editorial gathering 
be everybody in the room again for a couple of days, go out to dinner and take advantage of that opportunity that being in person provides, but absolutely learned that it's not essential to be there and that you can do this all virtually. And that helps you keep and maintain a high quality team like we have here. Because I mean, if we hadn't been able to be flexible and kudos to people above me, you know, Christine and Simon Stilwell always put our people first. And that has always been my policy too, but they did a great job with that. And they supported putting people first so that we could empower everybody to do this. And so that those are my takeaways of what I learned from it is that boy, we can do it, but it's a darn good thing that we uh, can get back together again soon. When did you join Investment News exactly? November 18th, 2019. Right. So I, I, as most people know, I don't, I'm not based in New York. Uh, I've always worked remotely the whole time I've been here. And um, I was in the New York office in January of 2020. And I met George for the first time. I met the editors, Paul Curcio and Sean Alaka for the first time, who also had just joined. And all I'm saying is, these guys all joined within a few months of each other in in uh, late 2019 and early 2020. And all of a sudden in 2020, we had a global pandemic. I'm not saying there was a, co- it's a, you know, this could just be a coincidence. I don't know, but you know, I'm just throwing it out there for, for anybody that's doing the math. You know, I'm, I think it's a little more complicated than that. <laughs> I, you know. I, I think suddenly I'm going to be getting a call from Dr. Fauci now. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. That's on me then. I, maybe I made a bad call. Now. I was just trying to, you know, cause an effect there. All right. Sometimes I, I, you know, I spitball a little bit. Oh boy. <laughs> I'm trying to solve this riddle. All right. Turn out loud. <laughs> All right. Hey, George, thanks for dropping by the the Investment News Podcast. Guys, it's my pleasure. Keep up the great work. And once again, Bruce, a hearty and well-earned congratulations. It is your first, and I'm going to do my darnest to make sure it's not your last. Jeff, that was another great episode of the Investment News Podcast. If it's Monday, it's time for another podcast. We want to thank our sponsor, Broadridge Financial Solutions a giant global company that does all kinds of brokerage services, proxy statements, annual reports, etc. We want to thank our special guests, uh, Mindy Diamond and George Moriarty uh, from Investment News. We also want to thank Stephen Lamb, our very fine producer. You can find this podcast at investmentnews.com, of course, as well as uh, all the other uh, locations where you get your podcasts. That's Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher. Leave a review on Apple. Follow us on Spotify. If you want to reach Jeff, reach out to him on Twitter. His handle is at Benji Ryder. Me, I'm at BD News Guy. Stay tuned because we'll be talking to you next week. <laughs>